Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 6. This morning we will be spending our time in Genesis 6, 9 through 22. You can also find this morning's text on the insert um, inside of your bulletin along with an outline of today's passage. We've reached the point in the Genesis narrative where the level of corruption and sinfulness has seemingly peaked. Uh, God has declared that he will act against this wickedness by carrying out judgment upon the earth and upon its inhabitants. We will see, however, in light of this and in the midst of this, that God spares Noah and his family. It would be through them moving forward that the seed of the woman would continue. The promise of a deliverer would not go away. And in some ways, Noah himself acts as a type of deliverer. He carries out the commands of God to the salvation of his family and the animals aboard the ark. This should draw us, especially as post-New Testament Christians, to the work of Jesus Christ and his obedience to the word and will of God, to the salvation of his family. This story is very relevant to us still, and if you missed our Sunday school hour, boy, you missed a treat, as um, Luke very did a fantastic job in showing how passages such as this in the Old Testament apply to and direct us in how we as New Testament Christians should worship. With that in mind, I do want us to consider as we're reading this passage, how does God bring about salvation to Noah specifically? And what does that mean for you and for me today? Because I do believe that it is still relevant for our lives. Let us now turn our attention to our text and hear from the Lord what he has prepared for us this morning. I will begin in Genesis 6, uh, reading in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. 
but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to keep you alive, or to keep them alive. Also, Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he has promised us that it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us again go to him now and ask for his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to a passage where judgment for sin is so clear and it seems heavy and honestly at times it seems too great, I pray that we would sit under that weight this morning. I pray that we truly would see sin for what it is. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that we don't linger there. I pray that as much as we see sin and judgment in this passage, we see hope, we see deliverance, we see salvation. Father, your word is just as true for us today as when it was written and when it was lived out. And so I pray that we would take truths from this story, this historical account, this series of true events, and that we would place our hope and trust in you. We would rest in your word and your plan for our lives, as did Noah. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this time. Seeing may we see. Hearing may we hear. Receiving your word, may we place its truth in our heart that we might not sin against you. We ask all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was listening to an author recount stories of people he interviewed who survived great hardships during the totalitarian rule in the Soviet Union in the 1930s through 1950s. And the author was quite surprised to hear from one family that quite boldly said their faith was strengthened by their father's imprisonment. By his torture, their family was drawn closer to Christ. And their faith was solidified in this great epic of hardship in a time period, in a, historic, in, in a time in history in which we would all look at and go, why? This one family says, well, we can tell you why. Because we were drawn closer to Christ because of it. In a time in which many were abandoning their faith or not passing it on to future generations, there was a realness found in difficult or stormy waters. I imagine this is very similar to what Noah would have experienced in his era. A man who who sought to honor the Lord with his life and the life of his family had to survive in a world that was completely against his beliefs, who did not have a heart for his God. In fact, earlier in this passage, um, you read that 
the thoughts and intentions of every heart was toward evil continuously. And yet God, in the midst of this sea of turmoil, declares Noah righteous and blameless. It's because of this, God chooses to deliver Noah and his family from the coming judgment. God used this time of trial to purify this family, the bloodline, the bloodline of promise, and really, as we will see in our text, the church itself. I want us to see four actions in our passage this morning that God takes, actions that God fulfills in the life of Noah and his family in the midst of this season to purify them, to sustain them, First, I want us to see how God acknowledges faithfulness. We see this in in the first two verses, verse 9 and 10. Secondly, I want us to see how God judges wickedness. And, And those two need to be seen together. Third, I want us to see how God's grace provides salvation. Faithfulness, wickedness, and salvation. Fourthly, I want us to see that God affirms his relationship with his people. We find that in 18 to 21. And then our last point is what should be and what was for Noah his response and in turn our response to God's provision. So when God provides in faithfulness, when God provides in judgment, when God provides in salvation, when God provides in covenanting with his people, we respond in faith. And we will see that in the final verse of our passage this morning. So four actions by God and our response are what it should be. I invite you to follow along with me as we begin by turning our attention to verse 9 and looking for a moment at faithfulness. In Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, Um, dealt with generations or genealogies. It it uses that word. These are the generations. And these are mileage markers in the book of Genesis. Anytime you see those words, these are the generations of, what you will get is a string or series of commentary on that time period. Um, Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. Um, In Genesis 4, we get the generations of Cain, and it's just that section, a little bit of chapter 4. Genesis 5, we get the generations of Adam. And in some ways, even here in 6 with Noah, Noah is a fulfillment of that passage. And we note as we have all along, there's distinct characteristics about each of these people groups, the the children of Adam and the the children of Cain, or um, to put differently, the children of promise and the children of wrath. But what we saw early in chapter 6 is an intertwining of these two groups. The groups that were distinct, the groups that were separate, the people of God and the people of the world began intermarrying to the point we find ourselves this morning that Noah alone is found righteous. And we're told these are the generations of Noah. Three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, This is the new page, the new history. This is where we will go for the next three chapters. We will read about God interacting with this family, this people group. 
And from there, we will see how it, it restarts here, if you will. It's kind of a rebirth. And from there, it moves forward throughout biblical history. But in this group, we have three distinct characteristics, specifically of Noah. As you caught it in your text, but, but God gives us three characteristics of this man. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then thirdly, Noah walked with God. Each of these are very important to understand because they speak about him and they speak about his descendants after him. So let's take a moment and consider how God displays his faithfulness even in these characteristics that we're told about Noah. First, we see that he was righteous. And to understand this, you must go back to verse 8. You actually have to start one verse earlier than we did. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, Noah did not earn righteousness by his works or his actions. Those come later. His works and his actions flow out of his righteousness. And that righteousness comes from the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this righteousness by saying this. Verse 9 does not come before verse 8. Noah's righteousness was the product of his having found favor. And therefore is proof of the favor, not grounds. This is a great biblical principle. Namely, the grace of God always comes before everything else. Noah was righteous because God declares him righteous. Grace leads to righteousness. Or to put it differently, those who are righteous will obey the commands of God. And for that, we could go to John 14, 15, or 1 John 2, 3. Secondly, we're told that Noah was blameless in his generation. And this is connected to righteousness. Righteousness and blameless, they're, they're uh, really similar words. And again, to, to quote um, Boyce, the idea seems to be not only was Noah upright before the Lord, but also he acted in such a way as to appear blameless in the eyes of the watching world. Because of his love of God and for God's word, he lived it out before his peers. And remember, again, this is in a time when no one's heart was toward God. So imagine what that would have been like for Noah to be the only one trusting in the Lord, to be the only one resting in God's word, to be the only one seeking to live faithfully. He really would have stood out in the midst of his peers. And yet, we're told he is blameless. And this is a strong reminder for us today that no matter how the world treats us, we must live out our faith. While it may not be appreciated by the world, and we could say that even stronger, it will not be appreciated by the world, it is seen by the Lord and is evidence of the faith that is within us. If we are trusting in God, if we're resting in Him and His Word, we will be led to, we will be driven to obedience of His Word. And that will be seen by this dying world. And the third characteristic we have of Noah is that he walked with God. 
probably the sweetest of the three characteristics. And in fact, this is the grounds for the other two. And really, with this, we find out he was genuine in his actions. He is righteous because God declared him righteous. He is blameless because he walked with God and sought to follow his ways. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that Noah was sinless. That was not a characteristic on this list. Noah would have, as all mankind and each one of us here, fallen into sin. However, it said he was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God, which means he was a man of forgiveness and of repentance. He would have had to have been a man who acknowledged his sin before the Lord and sought God's mercy in the face of it. And so we really, in these three descriptors, in these three short phrases, get a, get a sense of, of who Noah was. And it really is, is highlighted with this one statement that he walked with God. Oh, that that would be a driving characteristic for our lives today. Oh, that we would, it would be stated of us that we too walk with God. Well, we see this, this picture of uprightness and this picture of God's mercy and this picture of God's grace. And then immediately it is contrasted by what the world looks like. And so we have Noah. Now let's turn secondly to the wickedness of the world. And verses 11 and 12, I don't know if you, you caught it as we read, they almost echo each other perfectly. And any time in the Bible you have something duplicated, that's a mark of emphasis. It, it's, a, it's a highlighting mark. It's a mark of make sure you understand this. And they, they're almost parallel verses. And so here, like we did with Noah, Noah's description is found in the early verses. Here we have the verses describing the world with God's response in verse 13. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Again, stark contrast to the life of Noah, but also we get three descriptors, just like we did with Noah, three descriptors of the world, corruption, violence, and this labeling the flesh. So let's look at each of these and see the backdrop to which Noah lived. Well, the first descriptor is corrupt or corruption or corrupted. This is used three times in our state, in our text. You could translate it as defiled you could translate it as evil or wicked. You could also translate it as decaying or in ruin. And I really like that, um, seeing it as ruin or ruined, um, because if you looked at it in the Hebrew, you would find when God says, I will destroy, that word there, destroy, it's the same word as, as the word for ruin earlier. And so... This actually is something really beautiful in the text. As one commentator puts it, the choice of the same word to describe both the earth's condition and the action of God is deliberate. God's decision is to destroy what is self-destroyed or self-destroying already. God's action to ruin the wicked people 
is, all, is due to them already ruining themselves with wickedness. And so we, we see that this, there's this decaying, this, this rotting, this sense of, of them by their actions, their thoughts, and their deeds driving themselves to rot. And God says, and I will rot them due to their wickedness. But it doesn't stop there. Not only are they, they called wicked or corrupt, they're also called violent. Now, two times this term is used in this section, and this should immediately draw our attention back to Cain and Abel. Cain and his murder of his brother was so scandalous that God placed a mark on Cain so that others would not commit the same sin. It's a warning to fear God and to flee the sin of Cain. And yet here we are, eight generations later, and they, the people are defined by this very sin. It has become so much of who they are, it's in their identity. It is a characteristic of them. There is no fear of God. There is no reverence for his command. There is simply an abundance of violence. And then thirdly, our text labels them as flesh. This term is often used in the Bible to contrast that which is holy to that which is sinful. Paul, Paul warns the church in Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the flesh becomes a, a word for worldliness, for not the things of God, for chasing our own sinful desires. These three descriptors, they paint a bleak picture for the world that Noah lived in. However, we should see grace shines all the brighter Due to the darkness. This is highlighted in our passage as we come to see how God's grace provides salvation. Even in this darkness, even in this wicked period, God's grace provides salvation. Look with me at our next section to see this. For Noah and his family, there would be salvation through the ark. And Moses describes it for us here. In verses 14 to 16, giving us details into how it was built. Now, we can get ourselves in trouble and weigh ourselves down if we try to meticulously calculate this. And while this is really fun to do, and I encourage you to do it, don't become too overwhelmed with the measurements here. Um, you will find yourself frustrated and wondering how two elephants um, fit into a space that size. I love how um, a historian Origen um, has a quick answer to this and says, well, actually, the cubit mentioned here was most likely the geometrical cubit, which measures a span of six cubits instead of the day-to-day -day or common use of the term cubit, which would be close to our term foot. However, I agree with Calvin, well, I almost always agree with Calvin, but I agree with three points he makes specifically about this section, his description of this ark and the measurements found within. While we may not, God knew exactly what he was doing, and his sovereignty was on clear display. Two, the ark 
must have accomplished its intended purpose because we're reading about it. We don't know how big it was. We don't know how the animals fit, but they did, and we read about it today. And then third, and this one's really important for us as the church, and again, I really wish every single one of you could have heard this in Sunday school, but the ark is a clear picture of the church and God's sustaining grace over and against his judgment upon the world. To this point, first, or Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, um, the latter half of verse 20 and 21, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So while we can appreciate and stand at awe at what God is doing and what God did in designing the ark, and I want you to be in awe at that, I want you to be amazed at the, the, the physicality of this, even more so, even greater, I want you to see the ark as a picture of what God does to his church and that he protects and defends her and that he watches over her and that as he pours out his wrath upon the world, we are spared. The water which judged the world safely carried those in the ark to safety. Please remember that, dear Christian. And even greater than that, God has a special plan and a special relationship for his people. We see that throughout the Bible. It's often described in terms of covenant, God's covenant promise to his covenant people. And we read of it here in our fourth section. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God promises he will bring judgment upon the world due to their wickedness and their turning away from him. But for Noah and for his family, God is establishing a covenant with them. And, and one really quick note, and I, I want to make sure that we understand this. Noah's sons are never called righteous. Not once. They're never described as upright, as blameless, as walking with the Lord. Now, that's not to say they don't, and that's not to say that's not a description of them. But the description is given to Noah. What does that tell us? God's promise and God's plan is for the family. Our biological families, absolutely. But even more so for us as the church, the family of God. And I, I would be remiss to not make sure that we see that in our text. God says, I will covenant with you, speaking to Noah, but applying it to his family. And we remember as we, we think about this term covenant, covenant is a divine contract or agreement between two parties stipulating blessings for obedience and curses or punishment for disobedience and usually solidified in blood. And if we were to look at this covenant, if we were to look at this promise that God is making to Noah, we see these things here. The promise, salvation, safety, security, 
I will save you by carrying you through the ark. The command? Build in faith. Trust me. Rest in my word. Believe what I say. A lot of scholars, many scholars, actually say there's not been rain on the earth at this point. And so to explain that there would be a great flood would be such a foreign concept to Noah. More than that, it's not like he can hide his work. Regardless of how you do these measurements, it's big. And everyone would want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's not like Noah could go off in the night and complete this task. No, he would do so publicly before the world. But to jump ahead for just a moment, even that, even as we say that, the, that Noah's task was to trust in faith, he doesn't close the door to the ark. Jumping ahead a bit. God closes the door to the ark. God seals them in. God carries them in the water. So be very careful as we read this passage and as we think through passages such as this, you don't get hung up on Noah built the ark. Noah got the animals. Noah put his children in the ark. Noah, 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 Noah. That would be the wrong way to read this text. The right way to read this text is God. God spoke to Noah. God gave him the measurements for the ark. God brought the animals. God sealed the ark. God brought judgment as the waters fell from the sky and flowed from the ground. God provided for God's people. And this really does start to tell us how God's going to treat covenants throughout the Bible. You know, quite often a covenant is between two parties where there's blessings for keeping and and warnings against not keeping it. But when God makes a covenant, quite often he he upholds both ends. He knows his people can't keep their end of the bargain, their deal. And so he says, I will act as the upholder of the covenant and I will take on the punishment when you don't fulfill the covenant. Over and over, every time you see covenant in the Bible, this great sign of promise, think of it in those terms. Think of how God acts both as the judge and the savior, just as he does here. Why does this matter for us today? Because the ark is a sign of God's promise for the church. And what does God promise for the church? Well, the same thing. Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, by his shed blood, purchases the church. Those who will trust in him by faith. What is the offer? Salvation. What is it contingent upon? Faith. But you can't produce that faith. You can't do it. And so God provides the faith needed to trust in him and his work on the cross, which is a payment for our end of the bargain that we couldn't keep up. And so just like as we see with the ark, God is making this promise already upholding both ends. We as the church today, we look to Christ and see this promise, this new covenant, this this faithful capturing or gathering of his people, and we see God upholding both ends, saying, I will save you from yourself. I will bring you to me by me or through me. And so the story of Noah is a beautiful reminder for us as the church today. And it begins this this um, story of covenant that we will continue to see throughout the Bible, throughout God's word, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. 
And as we look at all of this going on, and as we turn to this final verse, and I hope I've been careful enough here, but I go back to something we said at the beginning. Verse 9 comes after verse 8. And we really can mess ourselves up if we don't accept this truth. Noah did not earn favor by being righteous. He was declared righteous and through that was called blameless. And because he was declared righteous by God, because God breathed righteousness into him, he responds in faith. And that's why in verse 22 we get that response. This whole passage is about God. And then we see at the end how Noah responds. Let us turn to our last verse to see that we too must respond in faith. And this passage, it's not calling us to build an ark. It's not even saying that we should have the faith of Noah. Don't dare to be a Noah, please. Although many have preached the passage this way, and I know that there's some genuineness in what's being said, but please don't dare to be a Noah. The point of this passage, and I think Noah himself, if he were here speaking before you, would say, you must trust in God. Don't look at me. Don't think about me. Don't try to emulate me. Go to the one I'm looking toward. Go to the one I'm trusting in. Go to the one that I'm saying will save my family and my generations. It's not about me. It's about God. It's a dare. This passage is a dare to love the God that Noah loved and trust in the God that Noah trusted in. And Noah highlights this in our passage. And I love this, I love this text. Verse 22. Remember, he's just been given this command to build this thing that's never been seen before to pro- provide and protect him and his family against something that's never happened at this point. And this is the response we get. Noah did this. That's the response. That's that he did all that God commanded him. God, what's an ark? How do you build one? What in the world is gopher wood? Nothing, none of that. No, no questioning, no second guessing, no but, but God, no, this is not fair. None of that. All we get is Noah did this, all that God had commanded. There's great beauty in this conclusion. In light of all of God's mercy and grace, in hearing of how God would save him and his family and repopulate the earth with creatures, Noah obeyed. He responded in faith. Brothers and sisters, my greatest desire for you is that you know God this way. I pray that your faith is so firm in him and strong that if one day... I have the opportunity to preach your funeral. My hope is that I can proclaim the gospel and then say, with any of you, and that dear saint obeyed God and trusted his word to the end. How beautiful a testimony that would be over your life. It's what I hope is said at my funeral, if it's true. It's what I want proclaimed. May we have these words 
as our hope and our promise. May this identify who we are to this world. They did this. They obeyed all God commanded them. We see in our passage that salvation belongs unto God. And through His promise, we will weather the storms of this world. When we try to do this on our own, a great parallel to this passage is anytime the disciples got in a boat, fishermen, professionals, anytime they got in a boat with Jesus, what happened? Jesus went to sleep. Why? Because he was tired and because he has full faith and assurance in God and God's word. What did the disciples do? We've got this. And then they almost sink the boat. And they cry out, God, save me. We can't live like this. What are we going to do? Well, what you should have done is like Noah. Noah did all of this. He did everything that the Lord commanded. We have to be careful that we're not trusting in ourselves. We have to be careful we're not trusting in our own strength, our own ability. We should cling to God with a faith like Noah had, trusting God's word and God's plan. You know, the family that I I mentioned earlier that was telling of the story of how their lives were affected by their father enduring prison for his beliefs, they said this at the end of the interview, and it really struck me. The father said this, Praise God for my imprisonment. My faith was solidified through my suffering. I found a closeness with God inside of captivity that I have rarely felt in the world of freedom. People will only come to this understanding and response if they're walking with the Lord. Just like Noah. Can you imagine the peace he would have had? When God said, I will save you and your family, you do this. And he does. He doesn't worry about the world. He doesn't ask questions. And oh, are there questions to ask? There's a lot of things we would like to know. And the same for us today. Rest in Jesus Christ and his salvific work for you. And he will carry you through the storms of this life. It's the greatest thing I can offer to you this morning. Not that it comes from me, but it comes from the Lord. And we place our trust in Him each and every day and rest in what He has done for us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for You are good. Your Word is true. And You are faithful. Father, We live in dark days, and we find it more and more difficult to live out our faith boldly. But as we do so, we read passages such as this one, or stories such as some of the prophets, people like Paul, like Stephen, those who march to their death for the sake of the cross of Christ. And we are strengthened, we are encouraged. Oh, Lord, may we not follow the worldly example of if you do good, God will be pleased. Instead, may we trust in you knowing that you are pleased. Now let us do good. And more than that, you will give us the strength to do so. I pray each one here today trust in you. Ask for the forgiveness of their sin and rest in the finished work of Christ for their salvation. Knowing That as the storms of the world come, as the difficulties and hardships pour upon us like rain upon the earth for days and days, 
that you close us in the ark of your love and care and protect us and bring us to dry land. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your promise of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask that you impress all of these things upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.